Hello, cyber friends. This is Chatting Cyber, and I'm your host, Mark Shine. This podcast focuses on how companies can help qualify and quantify the cost of a data breach. Chatting Cyber features some of the most well-respected privacy and cyber experts in the world. Join the conversation with business leaders, government agencies, and cyber experts to learn more about how and why they got into this ever-changing field that we call cyber risk. Hello, cyber colleagues. I'm Mark Schein, National Co-Chair of the Cyber Center of Excellence here at Marshall McLean Agency. And today we have a true cyber celebrity with us, uh, Jason Rebholt. Jason, thank you for joining. Yeah, thanks for having me, Mark. So, Jason, just to get started, you know, you are perhaps one of my favorite people to follow on LinkedIn. Um, you know, for the folks that want to try and follow you on other platforms, what's the best way? What are your platforms that you like to uh, communicate with uh, listeners on? Uh, so my primary platforms are LinkedIn, where I'll post daily, uh, just around just cybersecurity updates and just little bite-sized piece of information. Uh, and then I also have a YouTube channel where I'll do longer form videos. Uh, and that's going to cover more like the basics of cyber, but also go into some more advanced things on you know things like how do ransomware attacks actually work. And so that's under uh, Teach Me Cyber, uh, where you can find me on YouTube. So t- type in Teach Me Cyber into YouTube. Yep. Perfect. And, and, you know, I, I would think that you have a very unique perspective being the CISO of Corvus Insurance versus, you know, you see a lot of these other organizations, people that are trying to educate, given the data that you all have, I would think that your class, you, you know, kind of your thought process is a little bit uh, uh, more customized to what we're seeing daily rather than what we're seeing from a macro level. Yeah, and it's actually, it's a really important distinction because, uh, you know, I was I was born and raised in incident response. And so the way that I think about security is very different than what others will, right? You know, because you, you, how you kind of came into security and where you spent the early parts of your years, just like anything else, it really defines you as a person. And so when I think about security, I think about it in a much more practical uh, sense in the, in the terms of what are attackers doing and what are the roadblocks that you need to put in place to just make their job harder, which is a very different mindset of some other forms of security where it's just, you know, checklists, right? Like, okay, well, this framework tells me I have to do X, Y, Z. So I'm going to do all of those, but not really a sense of prioritization or anything like that. So you were talking about getting into security, you know, how how did you get into cybersecurity? What made you, is this something when you were younger or you saw the opportunity? Yeah, it really started, honestly, when I was in high school. And it's, my my entire career is just a series of just chance opportunities that have popped up and I've made the most of it. And so uh, early on in high school, I actually wanted to go into programming. And so I was taking some courses there uh, on that. And I just realized it's like, I cannot imagine myself coding for a living. It was just too boring for me. Uh, and so I was talking to my teacher at the time. He said, hey, you should look into computer networking. And I didn't know what that was. Uh, and so I started doing research on it and just stumbled into the security aspect of it uh, and just fell in love with that. And so I you know, bought a bunch of books, read those cover to cover. There was all these like stupid little hacker challenges that were starting to emerge online, like early day capture the flag type stuff. Uh, and I started doing those. And then uh, things just kind of unfolded. You know, I ended up going to school uh, for uh, at that time, they didn't have any degrees focused specifically on cybersecurity, but I found a school that had uh, networking systems administration and security. And so that really just helped me get a broader understanding of like, how do how do like computer environments actually work, right? And like, if I'm gonna go build a network, how do I do that? If I'm gonna manage an entire network, how do I do that? 
And then how does security lay on top of that? And so that gave me a really broad exposure. Uh, and then uh, when my first job is really what set me up for success. And uh, I had no no business getting this job in the first place. I, I applied for something I think it was like a senior consultant uh, role, which I, I definitely wasn't qualified for. But again, just opportunity and chance and, and luck here. Uh, it was Mandiant and Mandiant was just starting to look at college hires. And so I joined uh, Mandiant day one, not even knowing what the heck I was going to be doing there. And they literally hand me a hard drive and said, hey, tell us everything that happened on this. And I was like, OK, how do I do that? Right. And so <laughs> it's, you know, thankfully, I was just sitting next to some of the smartest people in the industry. Uh, and it just kind of rolled from there. Right. You know, just doing investigations into nation state threats like China, Russia, hacking into companies that steal IP. Uh, I did a lot with credit card theft uh, and a lot with, um, you know, just hacktivists and stuff like that. So I got a really broad exposure. Uh, and that's when I started getting exposure into the insurance space, because when I was working at Mandian, I was working with some of the big carriers who would send us uh, engagements to, to work. Uh, and then I left Mandian and started uh, with the Crypsis Group, where I, I built out their professional services. And that's where I just dove headfirst into insurance. It was just how do I build relationships with an insurance space and just help their clients uh, when they get hacked? Uh, and really, the rest of my career has been really aligned to that, you know, just helping out uh, the service, uh, helping out insurance carriers and their insureds. Uh, and then, you know, when I, I got burned out with incident response and, you know, I was looking at this and saying, hey, you know what? I was in a position where I kept doing the same scoping call over and over again. Sure. I would get on a scoping call and be like, okay, yep, I know this deal. You know what? Like, and you know, here's here's probably what happened, but we'll go collect the evidence and figure it out to make sure and then get you get you back to where you need to be. Uh, and I was just like, this is crazy. It's like I'm playing Mad Libs here and just changing out a company name, but it's the same exact thing. Uh, and so at that point, I was like, you know what? How how can I shift from this being all reactive to being more proactive? Like, I, I don't want to have to react to all these things. I want to try to stop them from happening in the first place, but I want to do that at scale. And that's where like, I, I looked at cyber insurance as the key mechanism to do that because there is no other company out there or industry that is uniquely positioned to help raise the minimum bar of security and help advise companies on cybersecurity at the scale that cyber insurance carriers can. Uh, and so that's where you know I saw Corvus and saw the technology that they were bringing to bear, just the underwriting expertise, uh, and then just that security mindset and that that hunger to learn more and understand more to help be proactive. Uh, and yeah, it was just uh, kind of opportunity here again, where it was a unique role where even though I'm you know a, a CISO where I'm managing internal security, you know I'm running our threat intel team. I'm working with our uh, our risk advisory team to make sure that we can get out ahead of these threats and just help uh, policyholders try to stay secure and avoid the incidents in the first place. So Jason, given such a unique background and kind of, it seems like you've always been able to kind of, um, um, you know, make the make the right call before it happens. You know, we have a lot of young listeners on the, on the podcast. Is there any advice you have for them that, that they're trying to get into the either cybersecurity industry or within the insurance industry? Yeah, I, I think the, the most important thing is try not to overcomplicate it, right? Uh, I had a plan out of college on what my career was going to be like, and it did not go to plan, right? And I have zero regrets about that. When I first started, I was like, hey, you know what? I'm going to do this consulting thing for a couple of years, uh, and then I'm going to go into industry and then you know work for a single company uh, and just do security for them internally. 
Uh, and it just didn't work, right? Like I just found something, uh, an opportunity that I absolutely loved and I just made the most of that. And so, you know, for anyone that was looking to break into cybersecurity or insurance, right? You know, number one is like work your network, right? Especially like insurance and cybersecurity are such small networks. And like, if you can just find somebody that's willing to go to bat for you and give you that opportunity, that's really what it comes down to. And then it's just about the exploration earlier in your career, right? Like the best advice I ever got was try as many things as you can earlier in your career and then figure out what you want. Uh, and so, you know, I was fortunate because I found what I liked very early in my career, but I still tried a lot of different things when I was at Manage. So I did pen testing. Uh, I did different uh, consulting gigs where I was going in and doing assessments and things like that. But I always found myself going back to forensics at, at that point as the thing that was really interesting. And so it's, you know, for, again, for anyone breaking in, it's like one, don't overcomplicate it. Like it's, it's great to plan ahead, but just recognize that that plan probably isn't going to go according to what you think it is, but just kind of stay present, identify the opportunities that are in front of you. And then when you get one of those, like go hard at that. And like, you, you need to work hard. You need to just like get more and more responsibility and take ownership over things because that, that just creates a compounding effect for you uh, that sets you up for more and more in the future. I think that is phenomenal advice. Um, I think that's phenomenal advice and, and, and very well said. Uh, Jason, so let's kind of kick things off, right? So you guys, uh, uh, you know, at Corvus, uh, being one of the disruptors in the in the insurance space, I think have a unique uh, um, uh, perspective in terms of what's going on in the market. I'd love to hear what you guys are seeing from a ransomware perspective, trends uh, going up, down. We heard last year, uh, you know, things started to die down. What do we see in 2023? Yeah, so 2023 is a completely different year than 2022. Uh, and so when we're looking at various threats that are out there, one of the things that we want to make sure is that we're not just looking at our own claims data, because our own claims data will tell a story, right? But that is a very small snippet of the larger ecosystem of what's going out there in the threat landscape. And so one of the things that we track is just activity on the dark web associated with ransomware actors. And so one of the more interesting ways that you can do this is what are the, the ransomware leak sites showing? So, you know, the kind of standard operating book for ransomware actors today is you hack into a company, you encrypt, you steal some data, uh, and then you post that on your leak site. And so we pay attention to this to track trends over time. And so when we look back to 2022, things were quiet right? Relatively speaking, right? Yeah. Ransomware still happened. But what we found was that following the Russia, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, there was a significant dip in ransomware activity. And it, it makes sense when you look at where these threat actors are located, which is predominantly in Russia and Ukraine. And so when the, you know, the, the battlefield that's happening over there is starting to impact the actual livelihood of these actors, 
it's it's obvious that something is going to change. And so we saw a lot of infighting where you had some of the Ukrainian uh, threat actors, you know, getting upset with the Russian uh, threat actors for obvious reasons. Uh, and so, you know, that's where we saw issues with groups like Conti, uh, where, you know, the basically Ukrainian uh, affiliate of Conti got pissed uh, and released all this information on them. And that really caused the uh, the disbandment uh, of, of Conti. And so there was just a lot of turmoil. Now, if you fast forward to 2023, we're seeing a 102% increase in ransomware frequency on these leak sites from just August to May, right? Wow. And so like ransomware's back, right? Uh, and what's even crazier is when we start to look month by month in 2023, it's continuing to increase. And so we're just seeing that one, you have the frequency back, and two, when we're looking at the number of threat actors and the leak sites that they have, that's also increasing. And so, you know, we can see a 32% increase of the number of ransomware group, uh, groups from January 2022 to May of, of 2023. And so it's just that, you know, it's a very easy calculation there now, right? You have more groups, you have these groups putting more attacks going. And so we're just seeing a larger impact as a result of that. So that's why, you know, when when we're looking at the threat landscape, it's like any idea or notion that ransomware has kind of subsided and the impact is gone, I just don't buy it, right? Because when we're looking at the global picture here, the numbers are telling a very different story. Is there any particular group that you've seen really kind of take dominance in 2023? So uh, LockBit is the number one group right now, uh, if you're looking at just pure volume, and they've had that uh, that number one spot for quite some time. Uh, the interesting thing about that is like it doesn't always pay to be number one, because when you're the number one ransomware group, law enforcement starts paying attention to this. And so you can see law enforcement around the world is starting to take more notice of it and starting to uh, put some uh, bounties out on this uh, and really going to start trying to crack down on that group. But I think the the one that one group that is is really making a name for themselves right now is Clop, uh, and Clop. While they're they're not going to get any awards for you know the ransomware group name of the the year here, they are going to get the award for being one of the first groups ransomware groups to start using zero day vulnerabilities to get access into companies, uh, and they switch this around. Uh, so they they have a, a profinity for file transfer software. So if you think back going to 2019, there was a, a Excelian data breach. So this was basically where uh, there was a vulnerability in the Excelian file transfer software. Klopp took advantage of that, stole a bunch of data, extorted the victims. Fast forward to 2023, and we have in March, Go Anywhere. And so this is yet another file transfer utility. They had a vulnerability in that. They scan the internet, they steal the files, they extort victims. And in that case, I think it was like over 130 victims. Now we have Move It, which is the latest one, mm. where it's, a, again, another file transfer uh, software. But the interesting thing with this one is that they had a zero-day vulnerability, meaning nobody else knew about this. And they were the first to get out there and start scanning the internet stealing data. And so now what we see is that they're releasing more and more victims. They're claiming that they have hundreds of these victims and it's just data theft. There's no encryption. They're just stealing the files and then posting this on their leak site. And so this is this is kind of the uh, the first emergence where we have a ransomware group that is doing these mass exploits 
for a very specific thing and then releasing these these victims in bulk. So, you know, I don't think it's to the degree of being, you know, a cat event here. Sure. But what we do find is that the number of victims can be pretty astonishing. And especially when you're looking at third party as well, because if, you know, client A has a, a, a move it uh, file transfer uh, a server that got popped, they could have information on hundreds of other clients. And so I think that's what we're dealing with right now is what are all the notification requirements? What is this going to look like? And so we're dealing with kind of this quick burst in the law, in the grand scheme of things of activity, but it's a lot, right? And so this is why, you know, this is kind of the biggest thing that's happening right now with ransomware. And I would predict that this is going to continue to happen with this group because it's working for them, right? Like it's working. So Jason, but but when I'm speaking to all these technology folks, they're saying, Mark, you don't have to worry about that as long as you put MFA in place. Maybe you could talk to us about what's going on with MFA. Is MFA safe? Are there ways to bypass MFA given some of the new, new techniques? Yeah. So, you know, I think there's a few ways to look at this, right? You, you still have threat actors that are using vulnerabilities to get into organizations. So even if you're using MFA, those vulnerabilities can essentially bypass that, right? You know, look at VPN devices. Uh, there are certain providers out there that are having a bad year where they've had probably four or five critical vulnerabilities. Even if you have two-factor authentication for your user accounts, that's not protecting the actual device itself where the vulnerability lives. And so we're dealing with that where these vulnerabilities are allowing attackers to just kind of basically skirt around any of those controls. But there's something else that's on the horizon. And so I think this is where we're going to start seeing this issue more in the next couple of years. But, you know, MFA for email access, for remote access, it has long been touted as one of the main things that you have to have as a security control. And that doesn't change, right? That is still one of the best things you can do to protect your users. But there's always a button security, you know. <laughs> things have changed, right? And attackers are finding ways to bypass weaker forms of multi-factor authentication. So when I say weaker forms, what do I mean? Things like uh, text messages, things like emails. One, nobody should ever be using that as a second factor unless it's the only thing that's supported, but attackers can bypass that. And then we're also seeing now where when you're using the, the application-based ones for your phone, right? Whether you're typing in a one-time password or you're getting a little prompt on your phone to uh, to click, yep, accept, I want to go through. There are new toolkits that attackers have available to them where they can bypass that. It still requires some user interaction, right? So you still have to socially engineer the user to do that. But like, it's a human, exactly. right? Like so they're going to fail at some point with a social engineering attack. So, you know, that's where we're just finding that understanding the type of MFA is gonna become critically important in the future. Again, I think we're probably like a year, two, three years out on this really becoming a mainstream problem, but we're starting to see things bubble up where we're gonna have this perfect storm. One, like you have the techniques available to bypass it. You have tooling that makes it stupid easy for these attackers to do it. And then you have a large number of organizations that are applying this weaker form of MFA. And so we're kind of starting this next cycle of, hey, we just put this new security control out there, MFA, and now it's been bypassed. And so we're like, it almost resets the clock a little bit and say, okay, yes, MFA important, but you want to do phishing resistant MFA. So it's, and this is just the cyclical nature of security. Like 
things are going to change and we have to keep up as it uh, with those changes as an industry. Well, I guess it leads me to my next question and, and perhaps the most difficult question. From a security standpoint, I mean, is there any controls or new toys and tools that you think are you know, critical for organizations to kind of beef up their maturity? So I think it just depends on where you're at as an organization, mm. right? You know, there are basics that we would want to see. Right? And, and this, is, this hasn't changed in probably five or six years, right? You know, when we're looking at MFA, we're looking at endpoint detection and response, EDR. We're looking at backups, right? Like, and, uh, and email security solutions. Those are our four critical security controls. And so if, if you don't have those, start there, right? But once you do get there, the next thing that I'm excited about is this emergence of uh, something that's called pass keys. And so this is, this is a technology that allows for a more frictionless uh, logon experience, and it has baked in security controls that make it more phishing resistant. So the power of this is like, this is like a sweet spot in security. Like you don't often get to say this, right? But like we can make your experience better for you, less pain, and we can make it more secure, right? Like we only get this every once in a while. So sure. like, this is why I'm sure. really excited about it because for security teams, they can work with their IT teams to say, hey, we're gonna get some cost savings here in terms of employee time spent on just logging into things. Uh, and we're gonna get this security benefit. Uh, and so I really see this over... You know, maybe the next three to five years, because we're just starting to get uh, the traction on it. I think that's going to become the next thing for organizations to start implementing uh, for for their users, and then certainly for you know personal uh, accounts, right? Like Google just rolled this out. Uh, Microsoft is rolling this out now. So like for the you know for personal accounts too, like I would encourage people to start setting that up because again, it's more secure and it's going to make your life easier. Um, you know, you hear the buzzword about artificial intelligence. Do you think that's going to increase the amount of attacks that we're seeing? Is it going to help prevent some of the attacks? Um, you know, personal or professional opinion? Uh... So I, I think it's going to be a mix of both. I think it, it's going to make attackers' lives easier. Uh, but for the defenders that that invest in this, it will make their lives easier as well. And so, you know, where I could see this going for the attacker, you know, first and foremost, it can help automate a lot of the things that they're doing, right? You know, uh, you know, in our first discussion that we had, we talked about, uh, you know, when I was doing incident response, it was like playing Mad Libs, right? These attacks follow a playbook, yeah. and these playbooks are still done manually, right? And so this is a very good stand-in for AI, where it can say, "Hey, I want you to run these tasks, and then based on that input, I then want you to do X, Y, Z." And so that can automate a lot of the monotonous things there. Uh, and so that will help attackers be more efficient. So we could see an increase there. But the flip side of this is for attackers, they can also, or for defenders, they can also do the same thing, right? Hey, we know these playbooks. So how can we automate more and, you know, bake in AI for some of the basic decision-making to help defenders scale a little bit better? So it's a, a little bit of an arms race right now where both sides have the, the same capabilities available to them, it's just going to come down to who can implement it more effectively than the other. Uh, and, and if I'm a betting man, which I'm not, but I'll, you know, I'll put some chips down on this. Like I think the defenders are going to be better positioned because you have a lot of companies that are just 
really invested in like what is the market value for them. Sure. So they all want to jump on the AI band uh, bandwagon. It's just going to come down to how effectively they do that. Whereas with these attackers, you might have a couple offshoots that are like, hey, I've got some spare time and just made millions of dollars with ransomware. How can I fine tune and uh, operationalize more and just you know uh, make my operations more efficient? And so I think you'll see some things there and tools will come out over time. Uh, so it will happen, but yeah, it's just going to be who can get to there, who can get to the finish line faster. So Jason, we've covered a wide range of topics over the past two sessions. Is there anything I should have asked you that I didn't get to ask you before I let you go? So I would say that the one thing I would cover here is, you know, we talked a lot about ransomware today uh, and there is a lot of doom and gloom with it, right? So I, I do think that people need to be prepared because we're already seeing the increase uh, globally, right? But okay, again, there's always a but in security, right? Uh, having the right security controls in place can put you in the position to curb that, right? And so, you know, with Corvus, we have not let off the gas on requiring specific security controls because we know that to be effective. We have the data to support that. Yeah. And so when companies can go in and create this baseline of these security controls, you are going to be more protected against ransomware and other attacks than somebody that does not have that. And so it's critically important because even though we're looking globally and seeing this increase, we don't see the same impact on our claims because we we haven't let off the gas. We've been strong and saying these controls matter. And just because you know the number of attacks may have decreased last year, it doesn't change the threat that it would pose to your organization if you don't have these controls. And so I think that's critically important is we really need to make sure that we're not uh, we're not lowering the bar that we've created historically. On, on what the required controls are, because that's just gonna make us step back as an industry. I think it makes a lot of sense and clearly why Corvus has done so well and become such a disruptor in the industry. So again, Jason, thank you for taking the time, uh, spoken about a wide range of topics, coming on and chatting cyber with us. Yeah, thanks for having me.